Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, February's Black History Month celebrates the often little-known or overlooked stories of the legacy of African Americans, a legacy possibly easier to overlook in New Hampshire, where the last census documented Black, Indigenous, and other persons of color to be just 10% of the general population. But Massachusetts' northern neighbor is also where African Americans built lives that shaped the Granite State's rich history. The trials and triumphs of Harriet Wilson, Amos Fortune, and Ona Judge are part of the foundation of New Hampshire's acclaimed Black Heritage Trail. Later in the show, in unraveling the long-told family story of her beloved grandfather's heroism, Grace Elizabeth Hale uncovered the shocking real story and wrote about it. If I could look into my own family history and get the courage to do that, perhaps that could be an example to other people to face the way these lies continue to support white supremacy in the present. In the Pines, A Lynching, A Lie, A Reckoning is Hale's latest book and our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. It's also part of GBH's Reckoning and Repair Initiative. But first, joining me remotely, Jerry-Ann Bogus, Executive Director of the Black Heritage Trail of New Hampshire. Welcome, Jerry-Ann. Thank you so much. Also with me, Dr. Kabria Baumgartner, Associate Professor of History and Africana Studies at Northeastern University. Hello, Kabria. Hello, and thanks for having me. And Courtney Marshall, an English teacher at New Hampshire's Phillips Exeter Academy, a private preparatory school. So glad you could join us, Courtney. Thank you so much. Hello. All right, I'm going to start with you, Jerry Ann. You're the executive director of the Black Heritage Trail of New Hampshire. People may listening may say, well, isn't there a Black History Trail here in uh, greater Boston? Certainly is. There are 14 sites on that trail. The African Meeting House in Boston is the last stop, um, and it provides uh, existing and online distance learning, virtual programs, and ranger-led tours. Um the New Hampshire Black History Trail, I have to say, Jerry Ann, is like blown up, as the kids would say. <laughs> you have a robust program of year-round activities and, and events. And so my question to you is, how has the existence of the trail and the way that you all have rounded out the programming there impacted the understanding about Black New Hampshire citizens' contributions? So there's been these little-known stories coming out here, there, and everywhere our organization coming together to really make it visible, doing all we can to tell these stories have really changed people's perspective of what they, of New Hampshire. First of all, they never knew black folks lived here, um, often being called one of the whitest state in the union. And so I think just having these stories up, having these, this long connection, 400 years connection to a Black history, a Black heritage, is giving people pause to to figure out what they actually know about our New England history. And why is it important, some may ask, um, that there is um, a resource like 
what you're doing at the Black Heritage Trail? The way I look at it, there are two things that make it really important for us to know this history, for us to know our connection and our roots. It's first of all, for a sense of belonging for people of color like myself and others in knowing that we have this long history, this long generational history, even before enslavement creates, it, you walk differently in a space, you act differently in a space because you know you belong. Your ancestors of people with your lineage had been here before you. So there's a certain amount of comfort in that knowledge that knowing you're not walking these, these roads of New Hampshire, um, as a first generation person, but just like everybody else who wants to say they came in on the Mayflower, you know, we have that long history of our ancestors coming in re before enslavement. I think also it changes the pers people's perspective of the state when you walk around and see these markers that we've put, put up or these historical sites of memories, these memorials for um, people coming to the state, it creates a much more welcoming environment. Because if we honor um, one under-recognized group, it means that we will gladly embrace, hopefully, other under-recognized groups. So I see it as really twofolds, really creating a different image of the state as much more inclusive, much more welcoming, and a place that you can actually where our forefathers actually strived in spite of all of the issues of being different, being enslaved, and being um, underrepresented. Uh, over to you, Courtney, uh, because Jerry Ann mentioned the historical markers that are so important to the work that uh, is connected to the Black uh, Heritage Trail in New Hampshire, and you've uh, been connected with that work. And you're talking about, you told my producer about uh, one that you're looking at now and just want to give people a sight of uh, a sense of how rich the black history is in New Hampshire, even as uh, Jerry Ann uh, said, you wouldn't think so because um, it's known to be an overwhelmingly white state. We'll talk about Nellie, Nellie Brown Mitchell and Edward Everett Brown. Um, they were siblings who were born in Dover, New Hampshire. Um, which is the seacoast area. And she actually studied at um, the New England Conservatory and was one of the country's first black concert sopranos um, who toured, she toured throughout the Northeast. Um, and he was a lawyer. Um, he went to Dover High School. He went on to Dartmouth to study French and Latin um, and went to Boston and became a partner at Boston's um, first, what they call colored um, law firm. So there's quite a rich um, connection between the siblings who are born in Dover and the world of music um, and politics and law. And um, as you were putting up these markers, I'm always uh, curious about people's reactions because I'm sure people had no idea of these stories. I certainly didn't. Um, and just to see them all around New Hampshire and know that these people lived and walked among what was even a, a more sparse population at that point in terms of Black folks is pretty amazing. I agree. Um, one thing that I also learned was that the Heritage Trail actually finds um, found the gravesite of um, Nellie Brown Mitchell, and so what, and then went there with other community partners to install headstones. So it's also fascinating to me 
how um, organizations find things like headstones and then it becomes a bigger project about paying homage and making these bigger markers. In fact, uh, speaking of headstones, um, we found this uh, clip of Valerie Cunningham. Jerry Ann talked about the work that she was doing before the Heritage Trail uh, was realized. Uh, this is in a documentary called Shadows Fall North, and she worked with Jerry Ann, uh, and she's discussing here a burial site discovered in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I was at my desk at the University of New Hampshire that Tuesday morning on October 7th, 2003, when I got the phone call saying, Valerie, they're digging up the street. You know what they found on Chestnut Street? We do know that during the period of time that that burial place was active, the vast majority of the black people in Portsmouth were actually enslaved. That's uh, an amazing, this happens, this has happened a couple times in New York. People may be familiar with the uncovering of the uh, burial ground there of African-Americans. Um, but that's, uh, that's pretty powerful, finding that, um, that a burial site. Jerry Ann? It, it was. And um, in 2002, when it was um, the accidentally unearthed because they were doing um, construction on the road, um, we knew that it was not the first time that it had been, the burial site had been disturbed. It had been built over, covered up, erased from early 1800s. And it had been in use from the 1600s as a segregated burial site. And there were notices in the in the papers in the 1800s when they were developing the area of skeletons remains being thrown away and discarded. So in 2002, when it was on Earth, there the town had known through records that it was there, but I'd forgotten. But this recent um, unearthing really brought to everybody's mind that, yes, it's true. This actually was an African burying site. Kabria, one thing that's fascinating to me that uh, you raised that I did not know, that we're talking about stories of, of Africans becoming African-Americans um, who were enslaved, um, so that's a part, very much a part of their history. And yet New Hampshire has never formally abolished slavery, according to how the legislation is read. Uh, please explain. Sure. It's um, maybe a point of contention among um, legal scholars. So there is some debate about whether New Hampshire uh, formally abolished slavery. Some scholars argue that the state did abolish slavery in 1857 there was a law um, essentially granting citizenship um, to uh, people of color. But there are other scholars who say that the state did not formally abolish slavery until the passage of the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in 1865. Um, so there is some debate about it. And um, this is one of the sort of great things about the Black Heritage Trail of New Hampshire, that this is a discussion um, that tour guides have when they give tours um, at different parts of um, the state. I think one of the points to draw from this um, is that we do have census records that counted enslaved people in New Hampshire in 1790, 1800, 1810, 1820. Even as late as 1840, 
there was one enslaved person who was counted. Um, and I would argue that census records can also be deceiving. So we know that African-Americans are often experiencing a kind of unfreedom. And, I, and there I'm borrowing from a scholar named Jared Hardesty, who's kind of coined this term of unfreedom. It means that African-Americans were neither enslaved nor free, right? So they might end up being uncounted then in a census record. So we do know that at least until the 1840s, there was one enslaved person and then other other African-Americans who were unfree. So, uh, Cabria, here's something that, that then becomes more fascinating because anybody listening to this conversation would say, now, wait a minute. I thought if you ran away from the part of the country, that being the South, where there were clear laws and enforcement of slavery, even though we know there was slavery in the North, but so much of uh, the the freedom story or the and the self freeing story of many African Americans had to do with moving north. So obviously New Hampshire would be north. Um, so they are running to a state where your your freedom is not guaranteed, as you say. You're sort of in this like twilight zone thing for real. Um, you know you're at least not in a place that's going to be um, clearly uh, enslavement, but New Hampshire perhaps was not the panacea that we thought. Precisely. Um, and not just New Hampshire, but much of New England. Um, I would say that there are sort of enclaves or networks of free Black communities that certainly protected um, self-emancipated slaves, and it's important to acknowledge that. Um, but there are other areas uh, throughout New England and in New Hampshire um, where Black people have to be very careful whether they are self-emancipated or free. So that brings me to one of the most fascinating stories, uh, uh, Ona Judge. Um, she ran from her, quote-unquote, slave masters, who happened to be very well-known, uh, the founder, George Washington, and his wife, Martha Washington. She was one of two slaves uh, that he brought with him when he moved from the South to uh, Philadelphia, where she should not have been enslaved at that point. Um, but uh, he subverted the law. So Pennsylvania law required that enslaved people be set free after six months of residency in the state. And what the Washingtons did was send their slaves, quote-unquote, uh, back south when their time would come up. And Ona Judge got sick of that and uh, self-emancipated. That resulted in this pursuit of her over years and years and years. So before you tell me more about her story, here's a clip from the Freedom Quest of Owner, Ju Owner Judge. Um, and in this clip, you'll hear that someone from the Washington family has come to grab her and take her back to the Washington home. Who is there? Owner Judge, open this door. My name is Ona Staines. I am married now, and I will not open this door until you tell me who you are. Burwell Bassett. I am nephew to Martha Washington, your owner. I have come to fetch you home. Now open up. So tell us more about Ona Judge Cabria. And I had no idea that a big part of her story was in New Hampshire. Right. I mean, it's, it's truly fascinating. Um, I had come to this story myself maybe only five or six years ago. 
um, in part because of uh, the work that Jerry Ann and the Black Heritage Trail, um, the work that they do, I, I learned more about it. And as you mentioned, Erica Armstrong Dunbar's book kind of shed light on it. Um, Ona Judge was born around, I think, 1774. Um, she was enslaved by George and Martha Washington, and she worked as a domestic for Martha Washington. She basically waited on her. And at one point, um, around 1796, Ona Judge learned that she would be given to Martha Washington, Mar Martha Washington's granddaughter. And it was at that point that Ona made the brave decision to emancipate herself. And so she escaped to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is an interesting site um, because there was a, a network really of free blacks. It was a small network, but it was a network. And um, that's where she was able to, um, to live. And what's interesting about um, her escape, I think is this runaway slave advertisement that we have from the Washingtons. Um, this runaway slave advertisement, on the one hand, it's a missing persons document, right? Um, Ona is missing from the Washington household and they want her back. But on the other hand, another way of reading the advertisement is what it says about Ona's brave character. Um, the fact that she's very cunning in even planning her escape. The fact that she's talented as a skilled seamstress. So it seems that that's what she was able to do um, when she reached Portsmouth. That is amazing. And she was 22 years old. Wow. Um, that took a lot of guts. So there's a story that um, <laughs> definitely um, makes the Black history, the Black Heritage Trail come alive for people who don't know this history. I'm also fascinated by uh, Amos Fortune's story. Uh, Courtney Marshall, can you tell me about him? He was um, born around 1710, um, passed away in 1801. He's a leading founder. Once he buys his freedom, he helps establish the town's first library in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. Um, later, he's commissioned by the library to, um, to rebind books. He is a prominent citizen of Jeffrey, New Hampshire. And what's um, fascinating is he's given the name Amos Fortune and he purchases his freedom at the age of 60 and, and starts a leather tannery business. So he becomes a really well-established business owner after he um, attains his freedom. And attaining his, free, his freedom was no small thing. This is a clip from a segment from Your Story Hour dramatizing a piece of Amos Fortune's story. I've called you here, Amos, to discuss your, um, freedom. Yes, sir, Mr. Carter. As you know, Ichabod Richardson recently died, and I am one of his heirs. The business of dealing with his estate has fallen to me. Yes, sir, Mr. Carter. And so I am now free Wait, to... wait. Unfortunately, the papers to which you refer were never signed. Never signed? And they are therefore not valid. Uh... And the last will, which he quickly put together just days before his death, didn't mention you at all. One question, his name, Amos Fortune, so often enslaved people took on names of, you know, uh, prior enslavers. Does his name have anything to do with his status as an enslaved and then free person? Yeah, I think he was, when he comes to New Hampshire, he's already Amos Fortune. So he didn't change his name. He kept his name. And um, we're absolutely not sure who named him, 
but we know he was enslaved, but he kept that name even when he came back. Um, I want to ask you about Harriet Wilson, uh, Jerry Ann. Um, but before I, before you tell me about uh, Harriet Wilson and her story, I just want to point out that when you started, you said you had 35 people coming to hear special programs. Now you've got 200, 300 people in person, generally speaking. And when you have something online, it's 500 to 800 people. So there's a lot more people learning about these stories that many of us never knew. Absolutely. We've really grown. And I think um, in the time of the George Floyd murder, people were really interesting to know how we got to where we are. So they sought out programs like ours that told the history and told it truthfully and breaking stereotypes of who they think Black folks are. All right. So tell us about Harriet Wilson. So Harriet Wilson, who was born and raised in um, in Milford, New Hampshire, around 1825, is known to be the first Black person, Black woman, to publish a novel in English in the world. And she did that. She published her book. The title of her book is Our Nig, or Sketches in the Life of a Free Black. Um, she did that in 1859. And it it's an autobiographical novel. Um, part of it really, um, the character in there, Fredo, um, mirrors Wilson's story partly. So that's why it's an autobiographical novel. And she just really tells of the, her treatment. She was freed. She was born freed. Her father was um, an African. Her mother was white. Um, so she was free in New Hampshire. But she was treated like a, an enslaved person. We think she was indentured to one of these, um, one of the prominent families in our town. And um, so she talks about that and compares her treatment to that of an enslaved person and saying that um, slavery shadows falls even here in the North. And where is the monument to her in New Hampshire? Milford, New Hampshire. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Jerry Ann Bogus, Executive Director of the Black Heritage Trail of New Hampshire, Dr. Cabria Baumgartner, Associate Professor of History and Africana Studies at Northeastern University, and Courtney Marshall, English teacher at New Hampshire's Phillips Exeter Academy, a private preparatory school. We're marking Black History Month by talking about New Hampshire's Black History Trail. I want to ask each of you to answer this question because we're at a time now where this kind of history specifically has been targeted in places by legislation, actual actual leg legislation, and um, in other places uh, by threats. How do you um, how do you respond to that? This is Black History Month. This is the time when we talk about these contributions. But uh, what is your concern, um, or are you concerned that? this history will get buried again? I think my worry is that this history will come later to certain people, uh, certain children and youth who are in those states where divisive concept laws have been passed. So they may get it, but they may get it too late. And there will be a lot of surprise um, because they will wonder why this history was withheld. I think this is one of the strengths of the Black Heritage Trail is that this organization is contributing to um, the study of Black history 
and the study of Black history in New England. Oftentimes there is this sense that New England and New Hampshire is a white state and um, there aren't many communities of color there and there's very little history. And what this organization does and what scholars who study Black New England do is they say, actually, we need to recover that history. It absolutely was present and is present in New England. We need to recover it. Um, and in, in doing so, we also need to remember that there's a narrative about New England as free and white. And that's a, it's a myth. And so the work of the Black Heritage Trail in this history is to uh, correct that myth and to recover from it. Um, we really are about, I think, building our sense of self, building community and how we relate to each other. Um, oftentimes at the Black Heritage Trail um, hosts in February their, their tea talks. And I'm just amazed at every tea talk in person. There are 300 people um, in the room, excited and ready and open to learning this history. And there's even an overflow space where people are just so encouraged by it. So I know that these laws and legislation and threats, there's, it's very real, um, but there's also a group of people who are pushing back against that. And I think that's the part I, I focus on. Courtney Marshall, what would you add to that? I work at Phillips Exeter Academy and I'm on a committee now to study slavery and its legacy here at Exeter. And so I think about the ways where Jerry Ann started us out with, with thinking of these places in new ways. So when I know, for example, that Moses Hall was the first black student here at the Academy in 1858, I can talk to my current day black students. So the way she said, you're not walking these paths alone. There were black people here before you. That's so, so important to me. And I know it's important for my students. And so I am incredibly committed to sharing the good work that the Heritage Trail does, particularly because many of our students are not New Hampshire um, residents. And so I'm just, I'm really excited with the ways that the um, Heritage Trail gets younger and younger people talking about New Hampshire's Black history. Uh, speaking of young person, here's a uh, New Hampshire Black Heritage Trail intern discussing Harriet Wilson's story. I actually grew up in Milford and I was never really taught about Harriet Wilson in school. It's really crazy to think about the fact that Harriet Wilson's story was forgotten and buried for the same hypocrisy that she talks about in her book, which is that the Northern states want to maintain this reputation of being innocent and never having slavery. And that's why it's so important for us to be telling these stories. I think everybody knows that uh, New Hampshire is a first in the nation uh, political primary, presidential primary, and uh, so there are any number of Democratic presidential candidates who come to the state. And I say that by way of noting that Tim Ryan, who was a Democratic presidential candidate in 2020, visited the Black Heritage Trail. And here's what he says about its importance. I think it's uh, something that needs to be done at this moment in our country's history where there's all this racial division. This group here with the trail is honoring uh, the, the legacy here and trying to repair and bring some understanding. So Jerry Ann, What's where do you see the, the trail growing and expanding and how um, in this fraught time, because it is a fraught time. And for as much as you're doing and as much as the, the folks that we've just listened to acknowledge how important these kinds of conversations that you're providing uh, as a result of the trail um, are, are having the tea talks that you that you uh, 
mentioned or Courtney mentioned, um, it's still a fraught time. And there's a lot of, well, let's say, a movement of erasure. So I wonder where you are and how you're thinking about how the Heritage, Heritage Trail will um, prevail in the next few years. So I think um, just like uh, Courtney and um, Cabria said, the, the, the work that we do of making this history visible goes a long way in making it permanent. And what we do, um, we now have 23 markers in Portsmouth and we've put 10 markers in different towns in New Hampshire. Before we put a marker up, we really work with a, an organization in the town that we wanna put a marker in. We develop relationships. We do talks. So we're building a community around these stories. So if we're not there, the community owns this history. It's their story. And it's told in the way that brings their community together. So if we, we constantly work on telling that uplifting stories, these little known stories, these stories that really fit New Hampshire's motto of live free or die, these Black stories, our Black forefathers, our African, African-Americans who came to this here represents that they would do everything for freedom, even in environments that are hostile, that are hard, hard to surviving. They did. They survived. They did everything to be good citizens in the towns that they're in and left a legacy there. And so our retelling of that, that human story, I just, I can't see that going away. Wow. Well, thank you so much. What a great way to give tribute to Black History Month, discussing these stories of New Hampshire's Black Heritage Trail. And I thank all of you for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Jerrianne Bogus is the executive director of the Black Heritage Trail of New Hampshire. Dr. Kabir Baumgartner is the Associate Professor of History and Africana Studies at Northeastern University. And Courtney Marshall is an English teacher at New Hampshire's Phillips Exeter Academy, a private preparatory school. Coming up, author Grace Elizabeth Hale grew up thinking her grandfather, the sheriff in small town Mississippi, was a hero. As an adult, she tried to document his heroism and instead ended up uncovering shocking details and one question that nagged her. Could her beloved grandfather be a murderer? In the Pines, A Lynching, A Lie, A Reckoning is Hale's latest book and our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And it's part of GBH's multi-year initiative, Reckoning and Repair. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.